Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 5, verses 16 through 30. Hear God's word for us. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may, be mar- so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of, God, of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If we haven't met one another, uh, my name's Gabe. I'm one of the pastors. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) And I just got to tell you just how much joy it brings me just to see you all this morning. Um, I'm seeing a lot of familiar faces, a lot of cherished friends, um, new friends, old friends, And just some new faces as well. And so if I haven't met you, my name's, like I said, I'm Gabe. And I just want you to know just how overjoyed I am to be with you today. Thank you, Aaliyah and team, for leading us um, so well. Carolyn, thanks for reading scripture. And we around here, um, we deeply believe that when we gather in Jesus' name, when God's word is read, that his spirit is doing something really unique. And he's working among us. So we're going to just pray. because I also know, I've had some own, my own things this past week that kind of shook me up a little bit. And uh, I, I know that sometimes you can walk into this place and a lot of things are happening, but still just going through your mind, it's hard to concentrate. It's hard to be fully present. It's hard to fully be here. And so let's just pray, trusting that the Spirit is here and asking Him to help us be fully here. You say, okay, sound good? Let's do that. God, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you have spoken through your word. I'm grateful that you have spoken to people in the first century and you continue to speak through those words to us today in the 21st century. I'm grateful that no matter what our past was, no matter what our yesterday was, no matter whatever we were experiencing in the car or on the bike or in the the bus on the way here, whether we walked here, that that you want all of us. I'm grateful that you don't want us to leave all those anxieties, all those worries at the door, but instead to actually just bring them here 
and allow you to speak into them that you might bring peace in the midst of whatever we're experiencing rather than just expecting peace in the absence of all those things that we're experiencing. And so we trust you today. We trust that you've promised your, your spirit will be working in us, convicting us of the ways in which we're distorted at looking at the world and, and guiding us into true ways in seeing the world, the, the ways that your spirit will guide us into life, the life we long for, the life you've designed us for. And so we just trust you for all of this this morning. I trust you for that. And would you guide us now as the word is opened, as I preach, as we together sit under the authority of your word, that we would grow, not just as individuals, but as a people, as your family, as your body. Without you, this is, this is futile. <laughs> but with you, it's truly glorious. Thank you, God. Thanks for loving us first and loving us always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, every major world religion and uh, honestly, every conversation I've had with nearly everybody in my life, everyone has a take on Jesus. Everyone um, has a take specifically on whether Jesus... Uh, whether he actually existed historically or not and what that means for the history of the world. Everybody has a take on Jesus as to whether or not um, he has a, a way of speaking into our pain that we're currently experiencing. Everybody has a take on Jesus as to whether or not he affirms our decisions or is wrestling through our decisions or is against our decisions. Everybody has a take on Jesus and how he impacts the globe, what it means for the world, not just for my geography. Everybody has a take. And I'm going to even say, not just Christians, right? Once again, every global religion, every one of the major religions, when we think about Mormonism, when we think about Islam, when we think about Hinduism, even if you want to go to atheism and the framework that there is, there is a take everybody has on Jesus. And here's what's so fascinating, at least for me, is that generally... Everybody likes Jesus, <laughs> like in some way, shape, or form, depending on their take. And uh, we like to draw pictures, paint pictures. Um, we like to tell stories. We like to write poems. And we especially love to judge one another based upon Jesus. And we do this by cherry-picking certain quotes. See, this quote really aligns with me. This quote really affirms where I want to go. But let's not pay attention to that. But this, this quote right here, like, see, even Jesus is on my side. Everybody tends to even like Jesus until, until he starts talking about himself. Um, there's nothing, I don't think, more dangerous than hearing Jesus' take on himself. Asking the question, who does Jesus say he is? That over history has gotten people killed, and frankly, it got Jesus killed. And yet there's no more important question for John, someone who knew Jesus, someone who walked with Jesus, someone who dedicated his life to Jesus after he saw him die and according to his eyewitness testimony account, saw him rise again, gave his whole life to Jesus. He says there's no more important question, more important than the origin of the universe, as important as that is, more important than the end of the world, as important as that is, more important than any personal question we bring about the specifics in our own lives. Every one of those questions hangs on this question, who does Jesus say he is? And as we walk through our text this morning, John writing down an episode, a moment, a memory where he had experienced and watched Jesus teach and actually explain himself, 
We're going to seek to organize the brilliance of Jesus here into three statements. This is super myopic. It's not going to do it full justice, but it's going to help us at least organize our journey. Three statements that Jesus makes about himself that's going to demand a response from every single one of us and demands a response of everyone across the globe. Do you want to know what Jesus has to say about himself? I do. So why don't we just go ahead and take a look. Turn in your Bibles uh, if, you, if you have a Bible or a Bible app. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the back table back there, a copy. If you don't have it, just take one of those. It's our gift to you. We want everybody to have a hard copy. I know we're technological age, totally believe in apps, love you version, all the jazz. But if you want a hard copy, we want to gift that to you. There's something about sometimes feeling a book, call me old, whatever you want. Um, but there's something about that, and we've got some on the back just for you. And here's where we find ourselves, okay? We are journeying through this gospel account of John. This isn't just like a one-off sermon. I wasn't, you know, in my study on Saturday and decided, you know what? I want to jump to this passage. We have five campuses across the city, and we decided together that God was calling us to walk through the gospel account of John. And so we've been making our way for quite a little bit now through this gospel account, this historical eyewitness testimony of John, and we've entitled it Word Made Flesh. Actually, John kind of does. In John chapter 1, verse 19, he says, All of this is about God becoming human to make the invisible God known. And really that word means storytelling. God has come to tell a story about himself that we can understand so we can actually know him and trust him for who he really is. And so when we're going across John, it's not just this exploration of who Jesus is. We're getting a picture of who God is. And John wants us to see him because he thinks, he thinks that, you know, this, this Jesus that I came to know, the God who I've come to understand, oh, he's worthy of our lives, and I just want you to see him. So that's what we're journeying through in John's gospel account. And just last week, we began chapter 5. Chapter 5. Pastor Caleb did an excellent job walking us through that text last week, and we saw that Jesus finds himself in a pretty sticky situation, right? Jesus has supposedly, according to the religious leaders of the day, broken the Sabbath, and in some regards, you could say he has broken the Sabbath, but Jesus actually says that he hasn't broken the Sabbath. There's a whole dynamic that's happening here because they come with some oppressive, more religious rules. They said that the Sabbath was there to, to help bring and usher in God's presence. And, they, and Jesus is like, you don't even understand what the Sabbath is about. It was actually for humanity, and now you've made it into this oppressive thing. And so they're seething, they're ticked. And, but that's not even what gets them so angry. The thing that gets them the most angry isn't what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath. It's about what he's doing on the Sabbath and how that's meant to interpret who he is. Who he says he is. That's where they start to lose their minds. Okay, so let's look again. Verse 16, Jesus responds to them. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is verse 18. So this is John, commentary on the context, giving us a window as to how they would have interpreted that statement. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their rule, but he was even calling God his own father. Here we go. Making himself equal with God. Jesus comes with an extraordinary framework where he calls God his father. God his father. Now, in one sense, you could look across the first century and a faithful Jewish person, when they gathered together in synagogue, they would come with a framework and may even go through liturgy or worship, kind of like what we did earlier. And they would sing songs and maybe even make a response to say, you know what? This God, he is our father. 
Yes, he is our father. And they would even claim that together. You go back to Genesis and then you go to Exodus, the second book of the Bible. When God calls the nation of Israel out of bondage, out of Egypt, he says, you are my son, Israel. There's sonship language that's being used throughout the biblical text where God is qualifying himself as the father over this beautiful nation. There's a corporate identity that God is our father. But Jesus uniquely talks about God being my father. And how this sets the religious leaders off is because Jesus is saying, I've got a unique intimacy with God that you don't. I am someone different. I am someone higher. This is an extraordinary claim around his identity, my father. And the reason this is all starting to be tethered together with the Sabbath and Caleb, once again, Pastor Caleb did a great job on this last week, is a lot of people debated in first century Judaism as to how to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the final day of the week. That was your Saturday. You stopped, from, you stopped working Friday night because that's when your day began. And then you could work again on Saturday night, but only that time. And then they were figuring out like what constitutes work. And they got super clarity, clear around all these different dynamics. It's like, should you know, if you take your pot from five feet to six feet, that's not work. But if you take it 10 feet, that's work, right? We're trying to what's work what's rest and last week we saw that taking one item even a mat from one domain to another was considered work but many pharisees and religious leaders at that that time considered that god was always working how how is that even possible because over all of creation how is creation maintained how does the sun continue to rise how does the moon continue to orbit how do all these different things happen if god is truly resting from work if he's the one who's sustaining all of creation and so the religious leaders said to themselves well since creation is god's household and he's the father over that household he can move the furniture around in his house therefore we can move the furniture around in our house but you can't leave your house and take one mat to from one house and go do yoga at your friend's house over here right you can't do that but since this is all of god's house he can continue to work and he's not breaking the Sabbath. And then Jesus says, this is my father and I'm just doing what he's doing. I'm not breaking the Sabbath. You just don't know who I am. All that's been applying to God, you said he's not breaking the Sabbath. He's always working. The creator, the one who spoke creation into existence, the one who called out Abraham, the one who created the nation of Israel, who's continued working even in the midst of his rest to sustain creation. I am his son. And everything that applies to the father over the house applies to the son. Therefore, as I work, I don't break the Sabbath. You just don't know who I am. This is an identity statement. And that's why every single one of them are like, hey, hey, he's calling himself equal with God. And then he goes even further. If you follow through verses 19 through 23, he starts doing one for one. Oh, if you honor the father, you honor me. If you don't honor me, you don't honor the father. You should honor me. And this is important. You look in the Greek. Just as you honor the father. Ooh. <laughs> you could go to Psalm 2 and you could see a king. That you should honor. you got to kiss the son lest you experience his wrath. Yes, yes, there was this language of, yes, you still honor various authority structures, the, especially the anointed king, but never the same way as you did God the Father. This was categorically different. And that all judgment is now entrusted to the son? All of this coming around who he's claiming to be, equal with God. And they're losing their ever-loving minds. And rightfully so, in many ways. 
Jesus says, I am the son of the father. And I think sometimes it's hard for us when we come to this text because we've become, if, if you've been in church for a while, you kind of get accustomed to calling Jesus the son of God. And then there's God the Father. If we have a Trinitarian, that's a framework of saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one God, but three persons. We step into a mystery wrapped in an enigma. It's beautiful. It's wonderful, but it's beyond us. And then if you're coming here and you're still new to the Bible and you haven't researched these things, we, whether you're accustomed or you're new, we can come to this and miss the, uh, the astounding nature of the statement that Jesus just made and how this made them ticked beyond all belief. It'd be kind of like this. I had a friend of mine give me this illustration. I thought it was brilliant. Um, it'd be kind of like if, if I went to or someone you know went to a quantum physics convention, right? Something like that. And they went to the quantum physics uh, convention, and there's all these brilliant minds and, and thinkers. And, and then suddenly this person steps up on stage, and he's like, you know this quantum entanglement thing? You know, my dad and I, you know, we helped formulate that. Isn't this pretty cool? People, what would they do? They'd lose their minds. You're nuts. Who let this guy on the stage? Some of you thinking this right now. That's fine. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, listen, he's saying, under it all, behind every religious question that you ponder, behind every scientific discovery that is made, behind every philosophical question around reality, the first cause, the, the initial domino that landed all, everything behind all of this ultimately is the love between a father and a son that sparked the creation of all. And when you look across the New Testament, if you look across the different books, if you look across the different letters, what's so fascinating is that the New Testament screams this to be true because over and over again, where in the Old Testament, you would have exclusively talked about Yahweh, the God of Israel, or talked about the different names of God throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, suddenly Jesus or the Christ or Lord finds itself either parallel to the God, the Father, or even in place of where they would have praised God, the Father. There's an extraordinary elevation of the Son, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, as now being fully God. And Jesus says, I am the Son of the Father. And for everybody who knew what that meant, they were ready to murder him. Boom. And they didn't even let them catch their breath because then he moves on to verse 24 and we read, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, just a quick aside. Every time Jesus says this, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, he is anchoring his authority in nothing else other than himself. Based upon what he just said, Hey, he says, hi, listen, listen, I am the son of the father. Therefore, based upon who I am, amen, amen, truly, truly, you can really trust this is trustworthy because of who I am. All of it's wrapped around identity. He says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus says, everything hangs on my word. Literally, the second statement that just, it, it blows us away is that Jesus says, my word is all that matters. 
I am the son of the father. He's claiming equality with God, a unique position over all the world. And then he comes and says, now my word, what I have to say, literally the orbiting of the heavenly realms, the dynamics of your immortal soul, everything about your life hangs on my word. And to reject him and to reject what he says about himself and even what he says over us is to reject everything. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your accomplishment. It doesn't matter your position in society. It doesn't matter how much you pursue justice. It doesn't matter how hard you work in any sort of religion and any sort of religious practice. If you deny Jesus' word, if you deny his authority over your life, if you deny what he says about himself, then your life means nothing. It comes to nothing. I just want you to imagine just, (laughs) you try saying that to anyone in your life. Anyone. You're just like, hey, listen, just don't try this, but just imagine, okay? (laughs) Saying this either to a spouse or a friend or a coworker. You're like, hey, man, if you don't listen to what I'm saying, you're going to be eternally damned. How's that going to go? I'll tell you how it's going to go. You're going to be Chris Rock on that Chris Rock, Will Smith dynamic, okay? I'm sorry. I know. I knew it was overplayed even before, and there's a whole lot of dynamics. Let's move on. I'm sorry. Um, But for real, though. (laughs) Sorry. Not sorry. Okay. But, but seriously, if you had someone come up and tell you that and then come with the audacity of all that he's claiming, I want you to put yourself in the sandals of these religious leaders at this point with religious zeal because they love God and they long for God's purposes to come. And then they hear this guy saying, I am the son of the father, making himself equal to God. And then he says, my word is ultimate. What do you want to do? I mean, this is blasphemy of the highest order. This is murder. I mean, this is, this is the opportunity for capital punishment. This is the time to silence this fool, this insane man, this madman. This is someone who's going to lead God's people astray, someone who's satanic, demonic. And listen, he gets accused of all those things. Every single one of those he gets accused of. It seems absolutely absurd what he's saying could actually be true. This guy from Galilee who's got no pedigree, we've never heard of him, more than likely, we don't know how his mom ended up getting pregnant with him, but it doesn't seem moral. And now this guy's coming to tell us that he's the one, and more than that, more than we ever imagined the one would be, that it's not just a Messiah who is, yes, led by the Father, but somehow equal with the Father? This makes no sense. And so how does no one, I mean, how does anyone stay with this person? (laughs) How does it, how does it, why doesn't everybody just walk away after they hear this insanity and has everything to do with what he says next? Look with me here at verses 25 and 26. Jesus, again, based upon who he is, says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus banks everything on life. And here Jesus says, I'm here to give you life. I'm the Son of the Father, 
and it all hangs on my word, but the reason I've come is that you might have life. Later on, we hear it recorded in John's account that Jesus says, not just life, but life and life abundant or eternal life. That's not just life that goes on forever. It's a quality of life in the present that actually expands our capacity for even understanding what life means. And and listen, next week we're going to spend some more time looking at why we should trust what Jesus has to say about himself. But today... I want to look at how, how this continued to survive. Because once again, these are some astounding claims. And we've tried to tame Jesus. We've tried, in the Christian community, we've tried to tame Jesus. Go look at 19th century scholarship or 20th century scholarship around who Jesus is. Surely he can't be who he said he is. Surely Jesus was just discerning or maybe we've misunderstood. You can look at Islam that declares that Jesus is not the Son of God, definitely not fully God, but a prophet, a faithful prophet and a good prophet who never went to the cross in the first place. But that's a mistake brought on by Christianity. Somebody else took his place at the last minute because surely Allah would never let that happen to his prophet. Very different perspective. You look at Hinduism. Jesus is not the one and only son of the father. He's just one incarnation of the indescribable supreme deity. And there have been multiple incarnations because there's no way we can describe the supreme deity and just pick your one. And really, we got to look at all these different incarnations and there's probably one right now. There's an incarnation almost every generation. So be on the lookout. Jesus says, I've come to give you life. And everyone is trying to avoid, in all these different perspectives, what actually Jesus says about himself. So why? Why do people keep coming back? Why do even many of you in here (laughs) believe every word that comes from Jesus? I know you. I know some of you that are hanging on these words, that are holding fast. Why? Because genuinely, Jesus makes dead things alive. He's made marriages that seem like there was no way out. He's, he's brought life back. He's, he's made your own life where you felt like you had nothing left to give. And then suddenly you felt the resilience of his presence carry you forward. And then literally, physically, you've seen healing. You've experienced those around you as you pray for them. You've seen provision or even the community of faith coming around. And we hold fast that in the midst of these opportunities where some folks felt like they were going down to the depths of the destruction of their life and Christ changed the trajectory of their life. That's what Jesus does. You've seen it. You've heard it. That's Jesus' mic drop moment. It's like, find dead things, put me in the midst, and watch me bring life. He's the best miracle grow around, right? And Jesus even says there's a moment coming, and I love that, and now is. Now is. Some of you know that life. Verse 24, he says, those of you who have received my word have passed from death to life. That's not a future statement. That's perfect. That means it's happened now and it becomes more realized. Yes, we still have the thorns, the thistles. Yes, we still get bloody knees. I was living with my mom, a single mom, who held fast to these promises. And I saw life in her, even though we barely made every bill. I saw life in her. 
And I said, listen, what she's got is what I want. When I'm seeing her weep over her body, listen, it doesn't mean we don't go through valleys. That doesn't mean you're always on the mountaintop. It just means you have life in every one of those places. And then one day, the circumstances will change for good. But we still have life in the midst of pain today. And humanity has shown that again and again for over 2,000 years. You can go to Iran, you can go to South America, you can go to China, you can go to Russia, you can go to the United States, dare I say it, where there are whole belief structures that are antagonistic to even giving us the framework for trusting in this one. And yet people do, and they experience new life. And just in case you're here and you're wrestling and you're wanting to hear a more modern story to tell me, Gabe, I get that there were ancient people who believed this, but remind me today, let me tell you about Malcolm Muggeridge. What a great name, huh? <laughs> who went to India, to a leprosarium, to the people that the rest of society had pushed out because they were in the lowest of the caste system. And he saw Christians caring for the ones that the rest of the world had cast out. And he said, only if there is a God would people do this. And they transformed his framework for what life could be. It reminds me of the story of the Afghan uh, Taliban leader that our uh, ministry partners in Elam told us about. That when he heard the story of Jesus, the lands that he had confiscated... He actually, I'm going to say a word, he gave reparations. He responded in repentance and gave the land back to the people he stole. This isn't like 40, 50 years ago. This was in the last few years. He heard about Jesus and said, if this Jesus is true, this has got to transform the way I look at property, at money, at reality, and I'm going to give this, I got to give this back. Transformation that brought about a more just society because Christ showed up. Stories like John Ortberg writing in his book, Who Is This Man? It's a phenomenal story. He tells of, of many people, but one person in particular, Mary Carr, she was um, a lifelong agnostic. She was a well-known novelist, and she grew up in a home where her mother had been married seven times. I don't say that to cast shame on divorce, but to highlight the transitory nature of her life. People coming in and out, coming in and out, making promises and not following through. Then her mother would burn her toys as a child and then tried to stab her to death. We want to talk about childhood trauma. And then something happened. The last person she ex expected to meet was Jesus. She's the author of The Liar's Club and she was a chronic alcoholic but when Jesus broke into her life, this is what she writes. If you told me a year before that I'd wind up whispering my sins in the confessional or on my knees saying the rosary, I, I would have laughed myself cockeyed. More likely pastime, pole dancer, international spy, drug mule, or assassin, right? And, and don't be offended at that. I mean, because listen, hear me. Somewhere Jesus is saying, I told you, I've come to give life. And yes, there are great barriers, and yes, there's great pain, but Jesus wants to enter into that pain in the same way he entered into the cross. And he wants to give life to you now. And it doesn't always happen overnight, but it will happen in full one day. And he, do, he does want to start it today. And maybe you're here today, and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm looking around, I know some of your stories, and, and some of you I don't know at all. 
Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what, it took my last bit of faith <laughs> just to show up to a place that talks about Jesus today. Because right now, all I've seen is death. The community that was around me feels like it's fallen apart. The walk I had with Jesus feels aimless. I don't feel like I have any dreams. I don't know what my hopes are. I just feel utterly aimless and I put all my eggs in the Jesus basket and I don't know if there's actually life there anymore. Today's a reminder that Jesus does make dead things alive. And if you need to hear that this morning, I know I need to hear that. If you need to hear that this morning, remember who Jesus said he is and hold fast to that. He's come to give life. So what do we do with this? Um, Jesus makes these threefold statements. I am the son of the father, an extraordinary statement of identity. Everything hangs on my word and my word has come and so that I might speak life over you and to you if you will receive it. What do we do with this? How do we respond to this Jesus? And really the Jesus that Matthew writes about, that Mark writes about probably carrying forth the testimony of Peter, Luke, after gathering all these different eyewitness testimonies, John, who actually walked alongside of Jesus, all of this eyewitness. What are we supposed to do with this Jesus? Versus listening to Muhammad, who writes hundreds of years later, John, or Joseph Smith of Mormonism, who writes way later, just a couple hundred years ago, right? I mean, not so long ago. Who are we supposed to listen to? Or should we listen to someone who actually walked with Jesus? We have extraordinary manuscript evidence that it goes way back, that feels very reliable, seems very reliable, and very plausible to carry forth his truth. Well, it's right here in the text. Our response to what Jesus says about himself is that we are to honor Jesus for who he says he is. You know, we, we find ourselves in a culture, and this isn't all bad, but it is a reality that really is leaning into shame right now. Someone makes a mistake and shame just riddles and the repercussions of that is they get buried in the next five minutes. And in the culture where shame is just everywhere, tossed to and fro, people barely trying to su survive, shaming others that they might be okay, we don't talk about honor nearly as much. We're leaning into shame but avoiding honor. And I also find it very interesting that in a culture that we really, and there's, once again, there's a lot of good with this, where we really value allowing others to self-define themselves, to define who they are, and, and to actually listen to what they say about themselves and engage with that. When it comes to Jesus, we often have the gall to come and say, no, you're not. The hypocrisy of that. When we come to him, Jesus says, I'm the son of the father. It all hangs on my word. And I've come to give you life. No, I, don't, I think that's okay. But I might go try something. I, I, whatever. So how do we honor Jesus? Well, it has to start with listening, right? Someone once said, to listen is to love. I've heard Pastor Ben Beasley say that quite a bit. Um. And the lesson, somebody said, sounds about right. You're right. Yeah. He says it a lot. He's a good listener. And the less we listen to one another, the less we're able to love, right? Well, I, I recently, um, you know, as a family, we do kind of a, some people do this as individuals. Some people do this as families. They do like a mission statement or they'll do like a word for the year. Well, for us as the Coyle family, our word for the year has been listening. So my wife and I, we've got three kids. 
So we are trying to learn listening, right? And some of you might be like, that's real self-serving, Gabe, as parents. You're right. I got no shame and all the honor on that one. Listen, okay? I want my kids to learn to listen. <laughs> and to me. <laughs> um, but no, in all reality, like even as Allie and I were processing and praying through like where do we want to, where do we feel like God's calling us to grow and where do we feel like we need to kind of cultivate within our kids and ourselves, we want to learn better to listen to our kids. Sometimes we are, this isn't James 119, but we're quick to discipline <clears throat> instead of quick to listen. You know, and there's a whole lot of idols in that and reason why we do that. But we're like, man, we just want to listen better to our own kids. You know, we want to, when they've got stuff going on, we don't want to jump to discipline. We want to hear what's going on. We want them to have the space to ask why, even though it's the sixth time in a row and they don't like the answer we've given. We still, you know, we just want to walk that journey. And the same should be true for us as Christians. And someone that I'm just beginning to learn about is a, a gentleman by the name of um, Frank William Stringfellow. He was an American lay theologian. So he wasn't pastorally trained. He wasn't a pastor. He was a lawyer and a social activist in the 1960s and 1970s. And there's a lot about his life and his writings that I don't know. So don't like, you know, follow up with me afterwards and say, are you supporting this or that or this? I, I don't know everything he's written um, and every stance he has. But I do think what he says here about listening is so spot on and apropos. He says, listening is a rare happening among human beings. You cannot listen to the word another is speaking if you are preoccupied with your appearance or impressing the other or if you're trying to decide what you're going to say when the other stops talking or if you're debating about whether the word being spoken is true or relevant or agreeable. Such matters may have their place, but only after listening to the word as the word is being uttered. Listening, in other words, is a primitive act of love in which a person gives himself to another's word, making himself, listen to this, accessible and vulnerable to that word. When's the last time you listened to Jesus like that? When he was speaking about himself and we just let that word sit and we let ourselves be vulnerable to what he says about himself. When's the last time that's been true for you? That's step one in honoring Jesus. Listening well, rather than coming with defensiveness. And listen, the more we do that with one another, this is the nature of things. This is why Jesus, when he's asked, what's the greatest command? It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not doing that with the people around you, there's a good chance that's a window you're not doing that with God. And here's the other thing, as Christians, if you're not doing that with God, it's going to be a lot harder to do that with other people. These are intertwined. You can't silo them. One is always a window into the other. That's an aside. Okay, so have you listened to Jesus like that? And, 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 and to be clear, though, honoring doesn't stop with listening, right? It doesn't just listen. It actually then shapes the posture you have towards that person. It shapes the ongoing relationship. That now you come with either a deeper respect and a deeper honor, a deeper heeding to what they are saying in light of who they are. And so when it comes to Jesus, how are we approaching him? What's the posture we have when he speaks over us and speaks to us? Because listen, he's either absolutely insane. This is an old debate, right? He's either absolutely insane or he's God. 
Those are really your only two options. And this is really important. If he's insane, this is, this is what's pretty astounding. If he's genuinely insane, then every major world religion's infatuation with Jesus, the very movement of history for the past 2,000 years because of Jesus, the very movement of you sitting here or standing here today is all stupid. I'm going to use a strong word. I know people aren't supposed to use that word. But if he's insane, we're idiots. And every world religion that makes a big deal of him is idiotic. But if he's right, if what he's actually saying is true, and if indeed the reason every one of these gospel writers and across the New Testament because they believe that Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, the life that's in him that he wants to give us is actually so strong that not even death can take it out. And he came out of the grave three days later. If that all actually is true, we got to receive him, folks. We got to receive what he says about himself even if it costs us everything. And be clear, to receive him and all that he is is not just taking a theological pop quiz. I've got my mental facts and I'll live my life anyway dang well I choose to please. Whatever you say that, right? <laughs> I can't even get the words out. You can't just say, okay, I've got my information. That was helpful here and now I'll navigate life's realities on my own. No, to receive Jesus is first to receive his life for your life. To realize that what he did, you can't do because he's someone you're not. He's God. Yes, fully human, and that's why he can do it for us. But you've got to receive his life for your life. Then secondly, you have to receive his way as your way. Not just the end goal, not just my ticket into heaven, but my way of living life. Because if life is in him, he knows life way better than you and me. And so it's the way, and it's going to look like a cross, but it'll end with an empty tomb. Every single one of us, not just Jesus, but here now, not just in another country, in another suburb, here, now. It looks like a cross, but it ends with an empty tomb. And then thirdly, it's always in receiving his body because that's where we belong. And I know there are wounds with church. I know there are pains there, but Jesus still calls that his body such that we, in the midst of pain, we can't go solo or we'll never know the fullness of life. Yes, We'll maybe protect ourselves from some pain, but we'll never know the fullness of life that he has designed the church to be a conduit for. So do you want life, eternal life? Then honor Jesus for who he says he is and receive him by learning the good habit of listening and then responding with a posture of reverence and then watch him work. If not, everything else is dishonoring Jesus. And you don't want to get to the end of your life having to face that. His grace is beyond any sort of rejection we have engaged, any way we have failed or faltered. But if we live our whole lives with our faces set like flint towards destruction and totally disregard Jesus and say, I want nothing to do with who you say you are. Well, we don't want to face that. And neither do you. Let's pray. As a fallible human being, someone who's just got so much uh, growing to do, words to figure out how to put into sentences even sometimes, um, 
I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, that this truth of your word would just anchor deep within us and it would give us a confidence this time tomorrow, a humility this time tomorrow in the places you've called us to be. That as we're praying for the nine individuals that don't know you, that we would come with a deeper confidence of who you are and the life we come to offer that's in Christ such that we come with a holy urgency, not an anxiety, but an urgency around the life that exclusively comes in Christ. And if there are those here who have not received you, God, I pray, Lord, that you continue to minister to their hearts that they would feel and experience your life. If there are those who are wounded and experiencing pain and are doubting the life that you bring, I pray, Lord, that this would be a moment of energizing their heart once again and reminding them of the beauty of the gospel for them. God, we entrust all these things to you. We love you dearly. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.